Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the, uh, into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. Uh, then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to, to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for uh, Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to inquire, uh, because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice. And God uh, be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the uh, statutes and the laws And make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads of the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times 
Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us the wisdom of this passage. Apply it to our community here, that our life together would be pleasing to you, marked by the love of Jesus. Be our teacher now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, as Daniel mentioned at the beginning of the service, today is Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday that historically the church has remembered before Jesus, uh, when Jesus came into Jerusalem for the Passover, the week before he was crucified. And when he was coming toward Jerusalem, he came riding on a donkey. It was kind of a sign of his humility. And all of his disciples, all the crowds, brought cloaks and palm branches for the donkey to ride upon as a way to honor Jesus. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, this is what they said to him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. How Jesus understood himself and how Jesus' disciples understood who he was was that he was a king. He was coming to bring a kingdom. Now, when I say those words, the kingdom of Jesus, what comes to mind for you? What is the kingdom of Jesus? I think for many people that say, well, is in the kingdom of Jesus like where you go when you die? You know, the kingdom of Jesus. Is heaven. Isn't that the kingdom of Jesus? Or some of you might say, well, you know, I think the kingdom of Jesus is something that's inside of us. Like, we learn, we accept Jesus as our personal Lord. And so the kingdom is something that kind of lives inside of us. Now, neither of those things are wrong, except that they don't really have to do with what a kingdom is. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is a political entity. It's a nation. A kingdom has a king. A kingdom has citizens. A kingdom has laws that those citizens obey. And so when we hear that phrase, the kingdom of Jesus, what we should be thinking of is, you know, this world is filled with all these nations and kingdoms. You know, there's like, what, 200 nations in the world, and all of them have a government, and they have rulers, and they have laws, and they have citizens of those kingdoms. And Jesus is making one of those, where he's the king. And the way that you become a citizen in Jesus' kingdom is you get baptized and you say, well, I'm a member of his kingdom and I give my loyalty to the king and you should have that loyalty in your heart as well. And, um, but also he's given us a constitution with a set of laws in this written book. And we are members of another kingdom among the kingdoms of the, of the earth. And every good kingdom has a well-run administration a group of people appointed by the king to help him execute his laws. Our nation, the United States of America, has an administration that executes the laws of the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is no different. He has an administration. Now, the reason I say this is um, we're a church that is in a time where some of Jesus' administration of his kingdom is taking more form in our church. Uh, you know, as many of you know, we have elders and deacons and diaconal assistants, and we have ministry leaders. We just hired an executive director for our church. We just hired another pastor. John Neville is a pastor. We have another pastor coming this summer. And we are kind of growing out of, you know, the informal 
community of disciples into something that's more organized than outposts of Jesus' kingdom. And I want to talk about this morning why this kind of organization is essential for Jesus' mission and Jesus' purposes. And because something like that kind of transition that we're going through is happening in this passage with the Israelites. Israelites were a community of slaves. They were all slaves in Egypt, and then they've been now delivered out of slavery, and they're wandering around in the wilderness. They're all in tents. They got their children, and they got their livestock, and they're not really sure where they're going. And um, so you have this whole community of slaves, and in the next chapter that we're going to look at in the fall, in Exodus 19, this is what the Lord says about them. The Lord says, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so right before the Lord says these words to these, all these slaves, you're going to be a kingdom, in the chapter 4 is the chapter we just read, chapter 18, where Jethro, who's the father-in-law of Moses, tells Moses, you need to get organized. You need some organization. You need to appoint other leaders to help you in leading this nation if you are going to become what God is intending you to be. And so this morning may not have been the most exciting topic for you. We're going to talk about administration, about organization, about leadership, why it is important for us as a community. And in particular, I want to highlight three things that Administration is a learned work. It is a skill. It doesn't necessarily come naturally. It's something that we need to learn as a community. Second, administration is a spiritual work. You might not think it's important to a spiritual life. The Bible sees it differently. And then the third thing is that administration is an ecclesiastical work. If you don't know that word ecclesiastical, comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which just means church. It's church work. So we're going to talk about those three things this morning. So Exodus 18, first point. Administration is a learned work. Administration is a skill that doesn't come naturally. It didn't come naturally, apparently, to Moses. And what this passage is about is how Moses needed a mentor to learn how to be a leader and how to organize other people. And the mentor is his father-in-law, Jethro, who we met earlier in Exodus 2. We found out that Moses lived with Jethro for 40 years, and he worked for Jethro, and he married one of Jethro's uh, daughters. And then Moses is here in this passage reunited with this man who had been really good to him. This man had brought Moses in when Moses was homeless and you know, let him marry one of his daughters. But Jethro was not a believer. Says Jethro was a priest of Midian. We know in other places that the Midianites often led Israel astray to go follow after idols and false gods. So he, you know, he he's like a leader of another religion. And this passage actually records Jethro's conversion, how he you know became a Christian, you might say. And actually, I got to spend a few minutes showing that to you. This is what it's, look at what it says in verse seven. So Moses arrives back to, with, with his father-in-law, and it says, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down, and he kissed him. 
And they asked each other of their welfare, and they went into the tent. So there's this really warm greeting, and Moses and Jethro, there's this affection between them, and they want to catch up, and they're going to go into the tent. Tell me, how have you been all these years? What's been happening? And then it says in verse 8, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that they had come upon in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done in it to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And so Moses tells everything that we've been reading about in all these chapters, you know, and Moses is like, well, God wanted to send me to help and I didn't want to go. I didn't know how to speak well, but he sent me anyway. And he, I brought Aaron and then all these plagues came upon the Egyptians. You know, this probably took hours to tell all this. And then he said, we went through the Red Sea and then we were out in the wilderness. We didn't have any water and all the people were complaining to me all the time. But then the Lord provided some water and bread. And so he tells this whole story and he's saying, basically, we were this huge mess of these slaves that are getting set free. And the Lord was faithful through all of it. He cared for us. And then it says in verse 10, And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the, ha out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And then he says this, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Now, all of a sudden, a question has been answered for Jethro. He said, oh, now I know who the Lord is. Now, because I see how he cares for the weak. He cares for these slaves. He cares for the oppressed. And he delivers people. And he's a rescuer. And so Jethro responds by doing what? He responds by worshiping God. That's what it says in verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now here's Moses' mentor. He's a brand new Christian. But he has a tremendous amount of life experience. He's been a leader of a community of people who actually lived in the desert, who lived in the wilderness. He's learned a lot of things. And he has important counsel to teach Moses, and Moses is willing to learn. Moses is willing to learn from him. And, you know, I want to make one note. Jethro doesn't become one of the elders in Israel. And there is something, you can have a lot of, there's a difference between spiritual maturity and say, you know, it takes time to learn about what it means to follow Christ. But you can also be, you know, I'm new in my spiritual life, but I still have a lot of skill about learning about how the world works, how to organize people, how to organize, you know, you know, someone's led a business or they've, you know, they've been involved in organizations. They have all kinds of administrative skill. And the wisdom that the church needs to be organized and to run effectively comes from all kinds of sources. And it comes from even people like Jethro. It's a learned skill. Now, I was talking with a, a pastor in, in town uh, a couple weeks ago who has been a pastor for several decades, and he was telling me about how, you know, it's different ministry in the church has changed over the last generation. You know, he said when he was a kid, a pastor, basically they taught the Bible and they prayed for people. That's what they did. And then the boomer generation began applying a lot of business principles into the church and, and you know, of corporate America. And then all of a sudden we had the emergence of the megachurch. And, you know, it raises a question, you know, how should we think about that? All the organizational leadership 
of corporate America being brought into the church. I know some of you will say, no thanks. You know, I don't want my church to be Walmart or something like that. Um, and, uh, and to some extent, I agree with that. You know, you can be very overly pragmatic about the church. And you have a formula that kind of works, that gets people in, and it gr- you grinds them through. And it doesn't really appreciate the mystery of the the Holy Spirit using God's word and using the sacrament to shape each of our individual lives uniquely. And so that's, that's maybe a possible criticism. But I do think that the Bible's answer to that question, how should we assess that, is a little more nuanced. Because even much of, you know, corporate business leadership philosophy has its roots in the military, in the leadership of the military. And the Bible often says that God's people are an army. That's how uh, uh, the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, they were, they were the Lord's host. They were the ranks of the Lord's army. And even in the New Testament, there's a place where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. And he says these, these words in Colossians 2.5. He says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And that word good order is the Greek word taxis, which is a military term. I'm rejoicing to see that you are organized like a military to do God's mission. Now, of course, we don't fight. We're you know, an army of love, doing deeds of love, you know, to extend Jesus' love to the world. But what's interesting is that that verse ties together the work of the Holy Spirit with organization. How many of us would think that way? And what that tells us is a second thing about administration. Not only that administration is a learned work, we need mentors to teach us the skill about being organized and having administration. But second, that administration and organization is a spiritual work. It's a spiritual work. And in this passage, after Moses greets Jethro, you know, and they talk about all that's happened, the next day, Moses gets up to do his work, and he goes out to all the people, and from early in the morning to, early, to late in the evening, all the people come with their disputes and the problems they're having, and Moses listening to each one of them, and Jethro's standing back watching Moses do all this work, and this is what Jethro says to Moses. Look at verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. And I think this verse gives two reasons why we should see organization and administration as spiritual work. Okay, This verse tells us, first, that the Bible says that administration and organization is a good thing, is good. And maybe you picked that up when I read that verse. Did you hear an allusion to the creation story in there? What you are doing is not good. Or in Hebrew, it's what you are doing is low tov. And uh, those Hebrew words show up in the very first chapters of the Bible. If you go back to, to Genesis chapter 1, you know that the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And then the Lord spoke all this order into the chaos. And when the Lord spoke order, or, you know, let there be light, and all these things, and they brought order to the chaos, what did the Lord say over and over again? It is good. 
It is good. It is good. The Lord delights in order. He, he likes when order is brought to chaos. He likes organization. But then you get to the Genesis chapter 2, and the Lord makes this garden, and he puts a man in the garden. He says, I want you to work and keep the garden. And then what does he say? It was not good that the man was alone. And he's, God said, I'm going to make a helper for him. He said that it was, it was low tove, the exact words that are used here. And, and you see in this passage... Those same Hebrew words about it not being good to be alone are in verse 17. What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. He's pleasing to the Lord. It is good to him when people are organized to help one another. That gives joy to the Lord. Now, this is uh, important for us as a culture because we live in a culture where it's very common for people to say, you know, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't believe in organized religion. And, you know, maybe you want to say, well, do you believe in disorganized religion? Is that what you prefer, disorganized religion? But actually, if you say, I don't believe in organized religion, what you are saying is, I don't believe in a religion that gathers a group of people together who have a common purpose of love with a common mission. That's, I don't believe in that. But if God actually showed up in the world and was doing something in the world, could you imagine it being you by yourself? <laughs> Wouldn't he bring people together to work together and use their gifts to, to organize one, one another? Because as soon as you do that, you need to be organized. You need leaders that are telling us which way we're going. You need structure. You need a mission. You need values. Like, what do we believe in as a community? What are we about? You need membership. You need people who say, I'm a part of this. I'm doing this. We're all in this together. You need all these things. This is an institution. And so for some of us, we say institution has nothing to do with my spiritual life. That's not the picture the Bible is painting. An institution is when people are coming together around a common cause. Now, of course, institutions can become rigid or impersonal. They can lose a sense of compassion and having a heart, and that's why I think most people are averse to you know, institutional religion. But that's why this, the second reason why administration is a, is a spiritual work is not only because God says it's good, it's pleasing to God to be organized, but the second thing is that the Bible says that administration is loving. And, you know, there is a gentleness and a compassion in Jethro's words here in verse 17. Look again. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. Organization administration is a way for us to love each other. And, you know, I think it's powerful how Jethro describes it as a heaviness. There's a heaviness that we need to carry as a community. And leading people, caring for people, often means carrying the heaviness that they have. You know, for those of you who are a home group leader, you've experienced that, right? You think about the people in your home group and you worry about them. And, oh, I know so-and-so is going through this. And, oh, they didn't show up today. Or they didn't say anything. They're seeming kind of down. And, oh, I need to pray. I need to check in on them. There's a burden that you are carrying for those people that you care for. And there is a lot of heaviness in a church community. We all bring a heaviness into this community. 
And love is often described in the Bible as carrying each other's burdens. So how does the weight, how does the heaviness get distributed to all of us so that we're all having a share in carrying that weight? It's organization. You want, uh, if you want to be in a community of love, you can't say something like, I don't believe in organized religion. We want a community that is organized around the love of Christ. Okay, so here, two points so far. First of all, administration and organization, it's, it's a skill. It's not natural. It's something that takes thinking through. It takes learning from all different kinds of people. We'll learn from people inside the church. We'll learn from people outside of the church how to do that well. That's fine. But also, administration is a spiritual work that is pleasing to God. When there is order and organization, it pleases God because it brings people together to share each other's burdens and love one another. That's why we should believe in it. Okay? But the last point we have to point out is that also administration is an ecclesiastical work. And the reason I say that is because this passage is particularly important about how our church is organized. Uh, most of you know that we are a Presbyterian church. Presbyterian is, comes from the Greek word presbyteron, which means elder. And so the fact that we're in Presbyterian church has to do with how the church is governed. We have eight elders who lead our congregation. And that structure of leadership where God's people are led by elders goes back to Exodus 18. This passage throughout the Old Testament, the elders were the people who judged God's people. So if you, maybe you've read stories like in all the little towns, the elders would meet in the gates and you'd go to the gates with your dispute and say, so-and-so you know, owes me this money. And, and the elders would help you sort it out and they'd take the Bible and they'd take God's law and they had to know the scriptures to apply those things and help you resolve, uh, resolve that. And they were supposed to be men of character. We find out later in Deuteronomy, they were men that were elected by the people. You weren't born into being an elder. Your peers had to say, you know, we respect that guy. We know he's smart. He lives a godly life. And we want, that's the person we want judging us and ruling over us. And they had to know the Bible and make sure that the Israelites followed what God's word says. And you see that those qualifications for being an elder, they're in this passage. Notice the emphasis on character. If you pick up verse 19, this is what it says. Jethro says this. To Moses, now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God, uh, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. More, moreover, look for able men from all the people, by the way, I think that's all classes, all different kinds of people, all different kinds of jobs, all different kinds of education. Look for able men. The thing you're looking for is character. Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So our church, we're a Hundreds, you know, we got people who rule over hundreds. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. 
If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. This tells us we are a part of a kingdom, and God has decided to administer his kingdom through elders. I think that raises one last question for us from this passage, because the Bible tells all of us that we're supposed to submit to our elders. That's maybe another thing that we don't naturally think about in our spiritual lives is submitting, especially to imperfect men. Of course, these are men of character, but they're still sinners just like the rest of us. How am I going to entrust my spiritual life, entrust my family, my thoughts, my ideas, my heart to imperfect people? Well, you'll notice again in this passage that Jethro says to Moses in verse 19, verse 19 again, he says to Moses, you shall represent the people before God. Now, when you read that passage, you might say, okay, well, there was Moses, and then he had all these elders under him that were kind of helping him. And you may be tempted to think, because when you come to this church, you hear me talking a lot, and you say, well, Nate's a senior pastor, maybe he's that guy, and then he's got some elders under him that are helping him. That's not how it works. I am one of the elders under. I am not the one who is representing you to God. Who's the one who's representing you to God? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who stands in God's presence and speaks for you and defends you and advocates for you. He is our Moses. And it's because Jesus is here that we can trust the institution of the church. It's not because we believe in imperfect men. It's because we believe in Christ. And we hope that his love is here. And the reason that we can be a place that is organized in love, a place where we bear each other's burdens, is because the one who took the greatest burden of all, the burden of our sin, the one who took the greatest heaviness, took our heaviness on the cross, he is here with us. And if Jesus is here, then I'll believe in this community and I'll give my life to it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you have gathered us. You've saved us from slavery to our sins and to our idols. You've washed us. You've called us citizens in your kingdom. Lord, we are here this morning worshiping to say that we give our loyalty to the kingdom and to the king. We believe in the love of Christ. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in the renewal of all things. Lord, organize us that we would lovingly bear one another's burdens and that you would be pleased with our good order. We ask in Christ's name.